It's episode 492 of the Roadman podcast, and today I welcome Michael Hutchinson. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman podcast. Roadman, thank you for joining me for another Roadman Cycling Podcast. If you're somebody who's absolutely fascinated with going faster on the bike, you're going to love today's chat with Michael Hutchinson. Michael Hutchinson was one of the best men against the clock of the last decade. What made him so fast? Was it an innate physiology? Was it his obsession with aerodynamics? Was it his keen eye to the sort of tactical nuances of the race? Or the way he was tweaking his kit? Or was it a combination of all these things plus some mental resilience? He unpacks it all for us and he shows exactly what it takes to go fast against the clock. Whether you want to smash your 10 mile PB, set and break that mythical one hour for the 25 mile, Michael has set some times that will make your mouth absolutely water. And I can't wait to welcome him to the podcast. Before I do so, I haven't mentioned it in quite a while. Patreon is how we fund the podcast. It's been from the very start. There's a small group of guys and girls out there who choose to give a small donation each month to fund the podcast and help us keep building, help us keep iterating, help us get these amazing guests. It's only a tiny contribution is all I ask from you, if you can afford it. It's the price of a pint of beer once a month. So if you'd like to buy me the price of a pint of beer once a month to support the podcast, you can do so over on patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. And the link is in today's show notes and every show notes. And it's much, much appreciated. I'm not going to push this one off any further. Let me welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Mr. Michael Hutchinson. Hi there. Nice to be here. Michael, how are you? Um, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. Busy, but good. You probably don't remember, we've actually worked together briefly. I was a pilot on the front of one of the Irish tandems, and you came in as an aerodynamic consultant, but I was dressed up uh, as Batman cycling around the track, so you probably don't recognise me in actual civvies. Oh, just about. I mean, quite frankly, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of bike riders go past when you're doing kind of aero bits with people, but yeah, no, I can't ever remember. And you're like uh, something out of Beautiful Minds, just like calculations on a board and carry the O, multiply by two. And uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm very glad that's the impression I'm giving. <laughs> <laughs> you're really just playing Tetris or something on there. Uh, not that much. It's uh, I, actually, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how much into the world of aerodynamics you want to get, but in kind of cycling aerodynamics, I think there's an extent to which everyone is busking it a bit because that's just the nature of cycling aerodynamics. It's it's. I, I will. We'll, we'll definitely get, get into it. it. I had a, yeah, definitely. I think we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. I, I want to find out first. Uh, are you still riding at the moment? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe nine or ten hours a week. Get out, do a bit. Um, it's not bad. Doing a bit of swift racing, which I enjoy. Um, it's not. It's one of those things my mates go, oh, that's not real racing. I go, yeah, no, I know it's not real racing, but it's a different, <laughs> it's, it's a hell of an improvement on turbo training. It's um, a hell of an improvement on turbo training. I put a tweet what, up a few weeks ago. Do you remember those old turbo trainers? Yeah. Like before the, the good ones came in when it felt like you were stuck in the sand? This little A-frame turbo trainer and you sit there and grind away at it for, you know, two, three hours. You watch a TV show or a movie or 
listen to the radio or listen to some music and just no, it's uh, it's it's what you regard Zwift as being an alternative to. Um, no, it's it's not racing, but uh, you can go and hop on Zwift and do you know do an hour, an hour and a half, and you get a kind of a good, completely unstructured random workout. But actually, that's always quite a good way to do it. I had a, a world tour guest on recently, and we were talking about this idea of retiring. And I suppose in the land of world tour, retiring from cycling, it's the day you stop picking up contracts. But for those of us who haven't ridden world tour, it's it is the idea of retirement almost a little bit grandiose because you could recall what you are now retired. I suppose you're not racing competitively, but you're still riding the bike 10 hours a week. So I'm not sure if uh, I will say you're a retired cyclist, but how did you know when it was time to close the chapter on that competitive part of your career um i think a lot of the time you just do as you say some of the world tour guys guys are i mean guys who are earning serious money at it it's a very clear step down because even if you moved on from world tour to riding for pro conti or you moved on from world tour to riding for a kind of a, 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 a domestic pro team that's that's almost retirement in itself it's not nearly as bright a line yeah. if you're doing the kind of things i was doing um, and you get to the point where you think, yeah, I've kind of, I've won everything I'm going to win. I'm not getting any further with this. Um, I kind of, I, I, the, la the last race of any significance I did was the 2014 Commonwealths. And I kind of, I rode for another year to do that because I wanted to do, I wanted to do another Commonwealths. Um, and certainly by the time I stopped, I was, I was very happy that I'd made the, I'd made the right decision, but yeah, you, you, I, yeah, I, I stopped and never said, oh, you'll be back in a year. And I thought, I, I really don't think I will be. And I wasn't, but it's, you know, I could have been, which you know, it's not as irreversible. If you're kind of a world tour guy stepping down, if you come back two years later, if you're not Tom de Moulin or, or, you know, or you're not, um, <laughs> Lance Armstrong, if you're not a properly big, <laughs> if you're not a properly big shot, you you can't pick up the phone to a world tour DS and say, "I was thinking of making a comeback." Yeah, I'd, I'd like to roll back into that. Once you're gone, you're gone. And it's not quite like that for me. But yeah, I was not un never never been unhappy that I stopped that I stopped taking it so seriously. Yeah, it is uh, less of a hard line, a more of a grey zone that we find ourselves drifting into. As you're looking back on your career. What's the, the standout moment that you're proudest of, or is there a single moment? Um, the first, well, the first thing I would, would think of would be the the Commonwealth in 2006, which is in Melbourne, um, and that's mainly because I just executed it really well. I mean, I finished fourth, which that's that's kind of okay. I'm okay with that. Um, but I I rode one of the best races I'd ever done on a day when you, when I needed to do it. And the other thing about that was it was in March. So, you know, you train all winter on your own to be ready for a big race in March. Um, there's very little racing before that. And I just executed that really well. I, I, I know it's kind of the conventional sort of sports psychology, right. You know, the, the, the right sports psychology answer to say that the things that I look back on, I think were the races that I got right rather than particular results or particular championships or particular records i think things like that every so often you just got a race where you, it just it just clicked um so i look back on that i won the i won the british pursuit championships when i was riding on a gb license in 2002 i think and that i, I was kind of i've always been amused by that because that was such a surprise I, I turned up to the national track championships expecting to 
maybe make it to the second round. And I was sort of standing by the, the signing on table and none of the none of the guys who you'd expect to turn up beat me turned up. It's just one of those days you're standing there going kind of, well, Paul Manning hasn't arrived and Brad Wiggins hasn't arrived and <laughs> Rob Hales hasn't arrived. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's, you know, it's hardly a triumph. You just beat a whole pile, pile of people who had something else to do that weekend. But it's always amused me. There's such a complicated history for any international listeners with cycling federations in Ireland and the UK and how they interact. And we had back in the day, I'm not sure if you remember this, I think I I might get the years wrong because I'm doing it off the top of my head. 1947, the NCA were asserting their dominance to rule cycling over the entire 32 counties in Ireland. The Great British Federation said, well, you can't do that because we govern six of the counties. They brought the case to the UCI. The UCI said, yes, in fact, Great Britain has domain over those six counties. The NCA told the UCI to fuck off. So the UCI then banned the NCA from all international competitions. And it sprung up a new cycling federation in Ireland, which was willing to play ball with the NCA. And then they hit this period of conflict where there was bomb threats, you know, Getting people getting pushed off bikes, tack, tumtack attacks on races. It was crazy. How did you kind of feel like you were? And I was given that for context for listeners. You know, you know the history better than I do. But what was that like, sort of navigating that dual license? Because as you say, you could turn up to the British National Track Championships, and then also, you know, a number of years later, you've been multiple Irish national champion. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I, I was talking to somebody else about this a week or two ago, um, and they're saying, oh, that must have been incredibly difficult. And I also wonder if I kind of got something wrong, because it just wasn't. Um, I, I was. What I found was if you talk to the federations about what it was you wanted to do and what you were trying to do, people were always very clear about it. And if you didn't want to go out and be a dick about it, um, it was straightforward enough. I mean, I initially approached Ireland, look at the Irish Federation with a view to writing for Ireland, uh, quite near the start of my career, when I kind of started riding and was immediately obviously quite good, I thought, well, actually, what I'd quite like to do, I'd like to go and ride like the World TT champs here. Um, and I got in touch with the Irish Fed at that point, And the Irish Fed at that point said that they had a policy of not selecting people who hadn't done their first racing in Ireland. And that was sort of their way at that point of squaring a, <laughs> the slightly awkward circle. I'm not actually sure how official a policy it was. I'm not sure it was written down anywhere. I think that's cycling Ireland all over there. Yeah. I'm not sure how official but, any of their policies are. But that was that was the policy at that point. I thought, okay, well, fair enough. That's that's the car I'd like to have ridden for Ireland would have been my preference. But there we are. That that door is closed to me. There was another rider who actually I won't name. There's another rider from Northern Ireland who was riding for GB involved with GB at that point who who had the same conversation. So they, it wasn't they didn't make it up for my benefit if it wasn't a specific policy. Um, so I then was involved with the GB squad for a bit, rode uh, Commonwealth a couple of times. Um, I rode for GB Paralympic for a year uh, in 2009, maybe, somewhere around about there. Um, and then when I did Commonwealth back in 2010 in Delhi, Brad Nugent, who was the Irish um, PD performance director at that point, he was there because he was coaching Martin Irvine. And he said, no, no, that's, that's, uh, that, uh, that, that's not the policy anymore. If you want to come and ride for Ireland, um, we'd be very happy to have you. So at that point, I changed license to change license code because I want to try and I wanted to try and get even, even that was quite late in my career, if I'm honest. But even at that point, I was keen enough that I wanted to come and try and ride, ride the worlds for Ireland if I could do. Well, um, it is quite refreshing to hear that you were happy to jump back and forth because so often 
sport has been used as this almost uh, geopolitical instrument. You know, you look all the way back to Munich Olympics and Hitler, how pompous he was at the opening ceremony until he had to present Jesse Owens with gold medals and, you know, Vladimir Putin in Sochi. And we always have had sport intertwined with politics on the island of Ireland. And the fact that you sort of navigated back and forth just really looking for bike races it, is... It, yeah, it's... Are you not the first person to have said, was that difficult? Or did you have to... And I, well, it, it just wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i've got some unique individual charm i don't know i was i i think the commonwealth i think kind of working through the vector of the commonwealth games kind of helps yeah because it means that most of the people i was in the commonwealth games team in 2006 or 2010 um mccann uh, phil lavery um stephen gallagher those kind of guys most of them are riding all of them i think were riding for ireland martin yeah. irvine was obviously riding for ireland he was around certainly in delhi and in glasgow um so and i would come in as a rider who is strictly speaking riding for gb rather than for ireland but i think the you know you come in to ride as kind of a common team for Northern Ireland at that point, it's it's there's that bit of the Venn diagram that I think makes it quite... Because when I turned up to my first Irish... Na- I mean, I'll admit when I turned up to my first Irish Nationals, I thought, hmm, not sure how warm a welcome I'm going to get here. Because you're suddenly rolling in with a, a, a new license code, arriving at the Nationals, clearly looking to edge a lot of guys who've been trying to win this for a long time. You're trying to, trying to edge them off the podium if you can. Well, so you beat one of my training partners, one of my long-time training partners, by two seconds for the title in 2014. So I'd say he'd be one of the ones that would have disputed it at the time, but uh, I think he was just, uh, he was beaten by a better man. Yeah, I'd say, and I turned up and no one was, everyone was just so welcoming. Um it wasn't a surprise they knew it was coming and you kind of you turn up and you're having a chat with martin irvine and david mccann and so on it's not like it's not like i beamed in from the moon um but it, it never seemed to be i mean i keep saying it never seemed to be an issue it's beginning to sound like i'm kind of protesting that too much but it really wasn't <laughs> i had an interesting guest last week on the podcast his name is jeremiah bishop he would probably not a, a household name in cycling circles but he is around mid 40s at the moment and he's still a current professional mountain biker and he has been a professional mountain biker since 1999 and i was asking him about what's the key to longevity in the sport of a sport you know spanning multiple decades and he had an interesting take on it which i almost wonder if a rider like yourself applies this would this bring you back into the sport so he he would uh, was of the opinion that don't go back and do the same type of events. So you have we'll get into some of your PBs, like astonishingly fast PBs on ten milers, twenty five milers. But if you go back to do ten and twenty five milers, you're always going to compare yourself to oh that day in Woodgreen, that day where you set this blistering seventeen minute time. His opinion was, if you go and do something completely different, if you go and ride uh, unbound gravel next year, you have no frame of reference to go back for that. So through his whole career, he's peppered in these new challenges. Does the gravel scene interest you in any way? It's very opposite to time trial. Uh, yeah, it is. I'll tell you what, the first problem I'd have with that is I live in South Cambridgeshire, um, and I've got lots of mates who live in places in southern England, like the New Forest, or they live in, you know, in County Antrim, and they say, oh, you should get a gravel bike. And I say, you should come to Cambridgeshire and find me some gravel to ride it on. <laughs> what, what I would need is a mud bike. Because it's all kind of arable land. There's no kind of trails of any description. There's kind of bridleways and footpaths, but they're all kind of around the edges of fields. And, and you know, you, what you've got is kind of a dried earth bike or a mud bike. And there isn't really anywhere 
So in, in, in principle, kind of, yeah, because when I look at my physiology, I sometimes think, you know what, I'd have been doing the wrong sport all these years. I should have been a mountain biker or possibly a cyclocross rider. I don't think I'd ever actually have had the bike skills because I came to the sport a bit late. And if you, I think if you want to be top-class mountain biker, top-class cyclocross and possibly top-class gravel, you need kind of died in the wool from way back handling skills from these from the point where you were young enough to not be too bothered about finding where the limit was and falling over um but the actual physiology of sunlight mountain bike or gravel biking is is a lot like time traveling so i do kind of to that extent wonder if i was doing the wrong thing all those years but and they have this big debate going on at the moment in gravel where they're trying to almost protest innovation inside and gravel uh you know i've had a bunch of the gravel guys on the podcast pete Setna, lawrence tendam and they want to almost get a consensus that aero bars should not be allowed to be used in gravel, that skin suits should not be allowed to be used in gravel. But their whole doctrine is, well, gravel's kind of hipster and it's free and there's no rules, so by banning the aero bars, that in effect is a rule, so they're caught in this weird space. Yeah, it, but it's it's what happens when... You know, it's like surfing joining the Olympics or there's all sorts of kind of fairly free, loose coalition type sports that have functioned for quite a long time on a kind of a a meeting of like minds basis. As soon as you create a series and as soon as the UCI says, oh, we're going to have a gravel bike world championships and the sponsors arrive, then suddenly it changes. And I don't know how I don't know how you avoid that. You, you can't decide you're going to have a gentleman's agreement that we're not going to have aero bars and gravel. Because somebody's going to turn up to the World Championship, World Championship course, took a lot, and go, yeah, I'll go faster with aero bars here. There's nothing stopping me. I mean, it, I, I think it's inevitable as soon as you introduce you know, higher profile events, World Championships, the opportunity to make money at it. Um, and then you need to regulate it. And then you're back to kind of gravel. Gravel ends up will end up being like road racing on a different surface. Yeah, and you're going to start getting out of competition testing. And, you know, at the moment, I don't think the guys have to submit to whereabouts and stuff, but as the prize money comes you know inevitably the allegations of doping are going to come and then the testing is going to come and like you say where we've yeah. just moved and, the playing field and by the time it gets to that point most of the guys who are taking it seriously are going to want that because they're going to want to feel that they will turn up to an event and be confident of what they're going to um it's it's a pity that the world works like that in some regards but you've got a choice either gravel can stay as a kind of a sidelined uh, slightly underground sport a bit like maybe something like ultra racing is at the minute there's a lot of interest in kind of things race across america and things like that which is a slightly looser slightly sort of off to one side version of cycling and you can stay there and have it the way you want it but if as soon as you want to i think to to make it a more formal sport it changes what do you make at a current state of time trialing? Is it something that still fascinates you? Do you still geek out looking at the tech and analyzing what they're using? Yes and no. Um, I think the time trial side of the sport has become very, very technical. Um, I find it refreshing in some ways that someone like Wout van Aert can win time trials as a non-specialist just by virtue of sheer raging talent. Having said that, you know he will be using the best kit. He'll have been in a wind tunnel. He'll have done all of those things. Um, but it certainly feels to me a little bit problematic that there's so much focus on the technology. Um, you know, it's like Simon Yates won the first time trial of the Giro this year wearing a skin suit that cost the team nearly £3,000. He's working with Panotti, I think. 
Uh, yeah, he would be. He's also been working. Been, uh, the, the, the Arrow stuff he did was with uh, Vortec at Silverstone in the UK. Um, so they did position testing with them um, along with skin suit testing. So that's kind of where the Arrow side of it comes from. But yeah, Is it still a rule that those pieces like his skin suit has to be commercially available to, to buy? Yeah, you can buy three uh, grand skin suit. I'll sell you one if you want. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I, although actually skin, the skin suit regulations are going to change somewhere in the next few weeks. So that that is going to alter and, and hopefully become become cheaper. Um, but it's, I, I think it's an issue that, that the time trialing side of the sport has. It, it puts people off coming into it, just the, the sheer expenditure that's required to feel that you are running a top end setup. But it has not always been the way because I was a, a student when you were winning TTs and setting these blistering times and I would look at the tech setups that Dave McCann had, that you had, that Martin Irvine had and I would look at the numbers and I'd be like, well, these numbers aren't unachievable if you stick the two of us side by side on a climb. But when you put you guys into the TT setups versus the humble setups I would have had as a student, I was like, there's a huge difference here. I, I don't have shoe covers. I don't have these aero helmets. I don't have disc wheels. I don't have the latest tires. I'm not obsessing on drivetrain resistance. Has that barrier not always been there? Yeah, but it's it's much bigger than it was because largely because aero testing has become much more available. Um, for even for most of my career, aero testing was largely guesswork. You know, I I I, I devised a system in 2006 or 2007 that I used for aero testing myself on the track, which is a lot like some of the current track telemetry systems. As far as I know, I was the only person in the UK doing that. And that's clearly part of the reason I was quite good through that kind of period of time was that I was actually doing that. But I was the only person doing it. And it was costing me maybe £1,500 a year to rent some track time, um, run some tests. It's got to the point um, now where people are buying kind of tunnel time at £500 an hour. And feeling that they've got to do kind of 10 hours of tunnel time every year to just test the wheels, the skin suit, the helmet. It's, you know, it's, it's not the equipment. It's the testing of the equipment that's expensive because tunnel time, say, maybe, maybe 500 pounds an hour, including, including a consultant to come and help you with it. And that didn't exist back in the era you're talking about. And if you look at, um, I honestly can't remember what national championships year it was. There was a year when I was setting up my stuff in the car park at the Nationals and Martin Irvine came over and said, oh, you're riding Specialized Shiv. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, brilliant. Can you come and have a look at something? And I went over and he'd got a Shiv. I can't remember if it was still in the cardboard box, but it wasn't built. He'd got like a Shiv. I remember this because he borrowed it from my local bike shop, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he turned up with a Shiv in like bets and said, okay, so I put this. And he and I kind of cobbled this bike together, and I think somebody else helped. And we sort of guessed the position. And Martin got on, rode up and down the road, said, ah, that feels about right. He was second or third that year, and he was only a handful of seconds behind me. And this, you know, he hadn't tested anything. He was just kind of turned up in his in a, in a bio racer skin suit that he'd got on a helmet he'd borrowed from someone, and a bike he'd borrowed from, from the local, from a bike shop. Um, and you know he was competing on the fact that Martin Irvine had very big legs. Um, he couldn't. I don't think he could do that now um, because it's it's just become that much more refined. And it's it's not the equipment; it's the testing of the equipment. And you look at some of the the guys out there, like Filippo Gana. I'm not sure if you can recall his power data from the World Championships, but there's a 20 minute section in the middle of his World Championships power file, and I'm gonna say it's. Uh, 
between 470 and 490 for 20 minutes in the middle of the world's file these are numbers we haven't seen definitely since that has become transparent in the post epo era and i had dirk freel the creator of uh, training peaks on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was saying it's interesting watching that evolution of power but have we ever seen numbers like ghana is putting out so we're coupling this crazy technology to testing with these in- insane power figures p- figures that we're more used to hearing from a pursuit yeah I'm not sure. I think there were some big numbers back in the day that you never heard about because no one was measuring them. And if they were measuring them, they weren't publicizing it. Um, I mean, I think they tested Miguel Indrian in a lab somewhere and came to the conclusion that his his functional threshold power is over 500 watts. Now, granted, <laughs> there there may have been some other stuff going on. I, clearly, I don't want to get your podcast sued or anything, but you know that was from a different era. Um, and you know, sitting in a very different position because it's one thing doing 500... Uh, it's one thing doing kind of 470 or 480 or 500 watts sitting upright on a turbo trainer doing a lab test. It's a different ball game doing it in, a, in an aero position. Um, but I think they've always been, I mean, Wiggins was, I think they reckoned he'd done 438 or 439 or something for the R record. Really? That's um, big. Yeah, and he's a smaller, he's a smaller, he's a, at that point he'd have been a lighter guy than, than Ghana, I think. Um, I like the way you added in at that point, just in case anyone's watching Brad on a bike these days. <laughs> well, well, I'm just trying to think, because by the time he turned up in Rio to do the team pursuit, he was about 10 kilos heavier than he was when he'd won the tour. So I'm just trying to think where on that trajectory he would have been at the point where he did the R record. I don't think he quite beefed up at that point. Um, so, you know, and that's 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 a full R on the track. I it's And I don't want to sort of say, oh, yeah, 470, 480, 490 for 20 minutes that's just jaw dropping i mean let's just put it this way my, my best ever 10 was in terms of par was the 472 i think um see which i'm doing, except, I'm doing that at, my 10 stuff i'm doing that at 73 kilos and ghana's what 82 it, it doesn't you know i look at that and think well that that's that's very impressive but it's not you know it's not completely out of kilter with the rest of the it's world. not superhuman yeah and so Looking back at some of your times, can you recall your PBs for 10 and 40 kilometers? Oh, crikey. Uh, 20, 40 kilometers was 54, no, 45, 45, I think. It was around there somewhere because I broke the, I broke yeah, David McCann's there. UK all-comers record. And I think that was kind of 45, 52 or something. And I took seven or eight seconds off it. So I'd say 45, 45. My best 16K or 10 mile was 17, 40, I think. Like yeah, these so are around there. crazy figures for anyone listening that's ridden a local 10. You'll just, there was a local 10 on here last day and I was just, I, I didn't race it. I was flicking on the results and I was just like, a 23.10 won a local 10 that was flat. I'm like, how how is that possible? That the, the fastest rider is doing a 23.10. Well, I don't know who was racing or equipment they were using, but it just struck me as, you know, a little bit of a indication maybe that the, the love for the time trial scene is going when you see those type numbers. Certainly in, say, I mean, obviously I live in the UK, and there's always been a very developed time trial scene over here as well. Um, and the numbers are down a lot this year. Um, I keep thinking I ought to go to kind of do a local club 10 here, and I just never quite... I, they do the club 10s on a Wednesday night, and I have a regular deadline to hit on a Wednesday afternoon, which is the reason I haven't done it. But I kind of think I ought to turn up and have a go at that, because I think I could still turn a pedal. 
You still go sub 20? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I did. There's a local 10 course that I did two or three weeks ago. I think I did just, just on my own. I think I did 1945 or something. And that's without that slippy wheels and skin suits and shoe covers? Oh, no, I haven't. No, it's with everything I could find in the garage. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that off raw, raw talent. <laughs> So it, it is a, it's an impossible question to answer, but I know people will be frustrated if I don't answer or ask it. It's Can we distill how to go fast in these time trials? I know the obvious answer is it's a combination of everything, but where's our Pareto principle? Where's our maximum reward? Is it in training, pacing, equipment? It depends where you start. If you are, you know, if you're already riding time trials and you've got a kind of a reasonable setup, that's a different answer to if you're kind of if you're coming straight into it from like riding a road bike. You know, if you've been a road racer and you want to you want to do better in stage races and you suddenly decide, right, actually, I need to start riding time trials. That's a slightly different because if you're coming to it from that perspective, actually, the first thing you need to do is get on top of the real basics, which is pacing. Which there are even some really good roadies come across to ride TT because they're trying to improve their stage race results and really struggle with what TTers have as an absolutely basic bread and butter thing, which is hitting a pretty even pace through the event um as soon as you can kind of ride the basics of a time trial you really start to got to start looking at the the aer- aerodynamics of it because that's you know, it, it's always been the dominant issue as well but for if you're riding a time trial you 90 percent of the resistance you're encountering is aerodynamic and you can probably from a kind of you know from a kind of a best guess starting point there's every chance you can improve that by 10 or 15 percent and you've got to go 10 or 15 percent faster you you, you you can't say no to that um it's the bar like you touched on it already the barrier to entry just seems so high in time trials like i'm still doing a little bit of bike race and i'm still cat one but and i often thought you know what time trial is a nice at least from a training perspective time efficient way to compete i don't need to be putting in 25 hours a week to go fast in a time trial but without having a time trial bike it's like okay how much do i need to drop on cash to be competitive on a a national scene on time trial um i am i don't think it's as much as people think it is if you're a good bike rider if you've got the engine you can go and buy something like a cervello uh p2 which is what a 15 or 16 year old bike it's only marginally behind the current top end super bikes you're, you're giving away a handful of watts you can find a decent set of wheels on on ebay or somewhere like that you can, so you could put together a, a really nice bike package for less than a, for certainly certainly less than a grand and i know people who've done it for six or seven hundred pounds if they shopped about skin suit you can get a good skin suit for uh, 150 quid aero helmet you can probably find one of those in ebay for 50 or 60 pounds and it's it's not free but you could certainly roll up to the national you could certainly you could certainly win a british or an irish national championships on a thousand on, on a kind of a, a 1200 pound setup if you'd got the legs for it now that's not that free brilliant but it's watch. not 20,000 pounds i was uh, a guy a guy, uh, guy did it over here two or three years ago was it richard bussell did it a few years ago he won the the british national the, the time trial governing body championship was the national 25 over here i think he won that on an 800 pound bike um it's it's you you certainly you know if you want to optimize it to the nth degree you can spend all the money in the world if you are kind of a good bike rider with the engine and the willingness to because things like in terms of here's a bit of ancient history for you when i first first aero testing protocol i devised was i got someone to take a picture of me on my bike 
from, this would have been like 2002 or something, maybe even earlier than that. Somebody took a picture of me on my bike from a little bit of a distance away in a variety of positions and I'd adjust the positions, you know, pads in, pads out, up to, and then I printed all the pictures out onto like photo paper, cut out with a scalpel round myself and all the bits that weren't me. So I ended up with a bit of photo paper that was just the bike and me and no background and I weighed them. <laughs> and the lightest bit of paper is the lowest frontal area. <laughs> you could do the same thing now in Photoshop with the pixel count. It'd be dead easy. Um, and it's a really good way to kind of make yourself more aerodynamic. Because people talk about CDA, and all CDA is, is CD is your shape and how aerodynamic that is, and A is your frontal area. And it's very difficult to improve your CD, but it's very easy to improve the your frontal area. And, you, you know, this is... And there are... You know, there are national squads that use measuring somebody's frontal area as their prime aerodynamic testing protocol. And I, all you need is a digital camera. It's dead easy. I remember in university trying to figure out how to go a little bit faster and borrowing as many time trial helmets as I could. So I set off with a big kit bag full of time trial helmets to my local hill on my time trial bike. So I get helmet a you put it on and i'd literally just roll like no power i'd roll down the hill in my position get to the bottom mark it with a bit of chalk where i got to pedal back up the hill get helmet b try it again and it was so basic but for me it was i don't know how much science is was in my approach but i felt like i had a faster helmet i felt like it suited me better i was like uh, well i'm after getting 150 meters further in this helmet that's a perfectly good way to do it i've done the same thing myself we did the we we did we did a actually we and we actually set out maybe twenty ten or something. We did a really quite a sophisticated version of that up a hill near Loughborough University. And we got the bike all instrumented with accelerometers and things and measuring kind of three axis this that and the other. Um, and actually, you got no more from that than you did from just analysing it with a speed sensor. And kind of you look for kind of peak speed, you look for where you're accelerating, and actually you could draw a graph of how it's different. We were doing we were doing skin suits. And you could draw a very convincing graph of how different skin suits behave um, and which speed ranges they're best in um, and things like that just off how you accelerated down the hill. And it's, it's astonishingly, it took a little bit of data processing, but nothing that, you know, nothing that you couldn't get someone to do for you. And it was, it was, we were, the results we were getting from that were, were matching what we were doing in the wind tunnel. Um, just takes a bit of imagination. So if somebody was getting into time trialing now and they're looking to deploy a little bit of cash, what's the, you know, I suppose the phrase is nearly CDA per dollar. Like what's the, the cheapest way to go faster to deploy that cash? Like what would you be buying first? Um, the first thing I'd be doing would be looking at my position and whether that involved, you know, doing something like we've just talked about, doing some roll down testing or looking at sort of frontal area of some pictures. I'd look at that and I'd be trying to find as free a method as possible to do that. Um, then I'd be looking at skin suits, I think. Depends a little bit what skin suit any you've brand, got now. Any brands in particular? Honestly, no, because it's quite individual. Um, the, last, the last time I was in a tunnel doing some testing... Uh, the guy I was doing was, I'm just trying to think of someone who's not kind of riding at an elite level. Um, I had a club rider who I was helping out who was riding, I can't testing him at 45 Ks an hour. There's a Castelli suit that was really good on him. And there's a Rafa suit. that There's a Rafa road race suit that was really good on him. It wasn't the Rafa time trial suit. It was the Rafa road race suit. Figure that out, if you will. I guess he's going a little bit slower. 
um, but it is quite individual. But you know, you've, if you're upgrading from kind of a standard club issue, you know, club team kit, jer- uh, skin suit, you should be able to go quite a lot quicker by buying a better skin suit. It's not necessary to spend three grand or 500, 500 pounds or 500 euros or anything like. Decent skin suit, good helmet. I mean, Google, if, if you Google decent, decent uh, helmets, you'll find kind of there's two or three around at the minute. That There's the Cask Mistral, it's a good helmet. The, the HJC Adwat tests really well on a lot of people at the minute. Um, I'd kind of I'd, the, I'd the testing I we done with you on the par on the tandem. I think the cask bambino was coming out fastest for nearly all of us on that day. Was it? Hmm. You sure it wasn't the tandem? Sure it wasn't the cask? Sure it wasn't the sure it wasn't the cask mistral? Actually, sorry, it was cask mistral. Yeah, yeah it's 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 good, and the bigger the better. That's one of these weird things about that helmet is that you need to get the extra extra large one because it's faster than the smaller ones on anybody. So when like, we were. You know, I've I've sort of seen sort of small female pursuiters riding the extra extra large cask um, Mistral helmet, and it looks like they've got a space helmet on, um, but it works. <laughs> the the HJC Adwat has kind of come out. It's a couple of years old. It's 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 pretty good um, in general. Giving away I'm giving away information here, but honestly, if you Google it, you can find that you can find all the same stuff. Um, and that's the kind of the bits I'd be looking at, but I'd be trying really hard to find stuff on eBay and trying to borrow stuff to see if you think it works, you know, because helmets are easy to borrow off somebody's skin suits are a slightly more personal object, but you know, people lend your helmet to have a, have a run out in. Um, and I'd be looking at that and I'd be looking at that, I think before I'd really start spending a lot of time. I'd, I do that before I spent a lot of money on my setup, unless my setup was kind of basically a road bike. Um, in terms of bang for buck, because yeah, you want to upgrade your bike and upgrade your wheels, you probably are looking at spending a four-figure sum to do it. Whereas you can look at skin suits and helmets are quite a lot less. The downside of skin suits is that they are—you kind of have to regard them as a consumable. They don't last very long. Yeah. Um, there are some skin suits that you wreck by washing. They'll work out of the bag. They'll be great. You wear them a couple of times, wash them a couple of times, and the fabric just starts to open up. Um, and and they go off the boil. So that is the downside of skin suits. You think, oh, great, I'll pay 200 quid for a skin suit. That'll make me quicker. And think, well, it will, but for 10 races. Is there an objectively fastest bike, or is that dependent on the person's position on that bike? There. If, uh, if you're to throw the bikes into the tunnel without the people? Um, well, there's two kind of two questions there. You could probably find objectively the fastest bike without somebody on it, but is it then the fastest bike when there is somebody on it? Um, one of the, you know, that, that's, that's one of the complications in all of this is, is how you, is how you measure that. And really the only way to do it is to measure bikes with a mannequin. So the mannequins in exactly the same position, but then this is expensive because the mannequins aren't cheap to do. Um, yeah, some bikes are better than others. The, the differences between them are not huge. Um, the current, say the current crop of, of TT bikes in the world tour, if you're riding at 48 kilometers an hour 50 kilometers an hour there's probably on average no more than now five or six watts between them it's not it's not enormous it's not a great place to start looking um wheels may be a little bit more of a difference but again what wheel you use depends on what frame you're using because there's an interaction between them this is in a way this is what makes it expensive and complicated to investigate all of this is that if you you know at the at the top end if you're taking it really seriously there's an interaction between your position and your skin suit. 
So your fastest position in one skin suit won't be your fastest position in a different skin suit. So you need to test, if you've got three different skin suits, you need to test all three skin suits in a set of different positions to find the fastest combination. Um, and that, you and then when very- we throw in wind outside and you throw in different surfaces, is that again changing that interaction? Yeah, it's you know, Dan Bigham, who I imagine you are familiar with, um, kind of moved the whole game on quite significantly. But the biggest thing he did was he took the time to fill every cell in the spreadsheet. So he would look at, you know, going on a position test, he would say, I'll go down 5 mil down, 10 mil down, 15 mil down, 20 down, 25 down. And, and then he would go up the other way. What most of us have done historically, if you're testing a time trial position, say you say, well, here's the baseline. Let's go down 10 mil and see if that's better. So you go down, down 10 mil and that's better. And you go, great. Let's go down 20 mil and see if that's better too. And you go down 20 mil and that's better and that's great. And you go down 30 and that's worse again. You're great. It's 20. At that point, what Dan was doing was say, well, I wonder what happens if I go up. So despite the fact you would think he's found the sweet spot of the graph, he then goes the other way just in case. And maybe he goes down, you know, instead of stopping at 30 where the improvement stopped, he goes on to 40 and 45 to see if it gets better again. Um, It's actually just populating every cell. And then you do that in four different skin suits. And with three different helmets. And you suddenly realize you've got the three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle of things. And it's the time to pick your way through all of that. And, you know, that's that's what takes the time from if you want to win the World Time Trial Championships. That's how you end up having to do it. And how hands-on were you with Dowsett for the World Error Record attempt? Uh, I was, well, I was his coach. Um and in the context of that, I mean, I was the performance director for the R record. So I was in charge of things like, I was involved in things like equipment selection. I mean, it was Alex's R record attempt, so he's making the final decisions, but I was involved in the choices for equipment. Um, I was involved in the training work on the way in, how we put the attempt together in terms of the, the performance side of it, essentially. So what skin suits we were using, what helmets, um, the bike, um, and all of that. It's... In the role of a coach in that with a rider like Alex, you're very much, uh, I don't want to say an assistant, but it's certainly not a model where I would be telling Alex what to do. We would go to a wind tunnel and test a few things, and then afterwards we'd say, well, that worked. What do we think about that? Okay, well, that we'll go with that option, and we know what the B, you know, we'll, we'll test that on the track when we get to Mexico, but we know what our A options and B options are. So you're helping make choices the whole way through and acting as a kind of a counselor. Um, so it's... Uh, but it's it's maybe it's maybe like being a senior civil servant to a prime minister or something. It's it's yeah. it's their show and they're making the decisions. But you're always saying, "Well, have we tried this? Should we look at that? I think this is a better way of going because this works better." Um, so it's it's all of that. And then in Mexico, we did some testing there, which I was in charge of because I was the only person there. So all of that was was down to me at that point because we had some final equipment choices to make when we got there. I prepared the schedule, um, and obviously I did the kind of the, the, the lap-by-lap feedback during the attempt. So you were saying the Commonwealth Games, when you got fourth, you went through the process, and you were happy that you every I was dotted, every T was crossed, and you got the maximum potential out of that performance. Do you feel like you got the most out of Alex that day, or did he get the most out of himself, or was there was there gains left? I don't think there was a lot left within the constraints of 
because we were only there for a week bear in mind kind of victor who held the record had been there for several weeks with a crew of kind of 15 or 20 people so there were we were there for a week um and there were five of us plus uh alex's 10 10 month old daughter which is quite funny like a, <laughs> a weird family trip to break the r record um i had I, him on the podcast talking about it and i was interested in comparing your perspective on his as well um no, that's interesting. Um, you got me worried now. Um, I don't think there was a lot more to get out of him. I, you know, we could have certainly Alex had the capacity to break the record, but not with that attempt. Because I, I think organising the attempt, because he had to organise it himself. Because the, the the team were very happy for him to do it, but the team didn't want to kind of actually get involved in organising it. So yeah. he had to raise the money to do it. You know, raise the sponsorship, raise the funds, organise it, deal with the UCI deal with Tiso timing you know literally um talking to printers in mexico about getting the decals that you have to put around the track because they're all specified by the uci so he'll, he'll be on the phone to a print shop in aguas calientes in mexico before he goes out saying we need you know we need vinyl herself he's at vinyls this size i'll send you the designs and the vector files and that takes a toll when what you really want an athlete to be doing at that point is relaxing recovering doing the right training getting everything right um and that kind of workload takes a toll there's one of the one of the kind of phrases that i overuse and the bits of coaching that i do is to say there's no such thing as a non-physical stress all stress has a physical effect it's it's why it's hard it's what is it's why it's hard to be a top level bike rider and hold down a job it's not that you haven't physically got the time to do all these things. What you haven't got is kind of the mental capacity to do it without the without stress, stress is starting to rise. And that just affects kind of that it's hormonal. It affects, it affects what you're doing. And um, I think that was what limited Alex in that attempt. I think given the way we went into it um, and how he had to approach it, I don't think there was very much left there. I mean, in the end, the main reason he didn't break the record was he couldn't actually hold the position through into the second half of the of the event, um, and that's just a that two or three watts more was all it would have taken to get him over the edge where he would have been had enough headroom and enough margin to have held the position into the second half of the event. And if he'd done that, he'd broken the record. It was the 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 distance by which he missed it in practice was so small. It's such minuscule margins at that level. Michael, it's a fascinating chat, a brilliant insight into aerodynamics, competition, you know, even Irish politics. It's all been here. Yeah, Thanks for chatting at all. Yeah, no worries. It's fun. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. This podcast really wouldn't be possible without our amazing listeners who have contributed to the running of this podcast since its inception over on Patreon. So thank you for everybody that has subscribed over there. You make this podcast possible. If you haven't subscribed yet, it takes about 60 seconds and it really keeps this show on the road. So you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. Buy me the price of a pint of beer once per month. It's not a lot to ask if you're getting value from the show. This works out at less than 25 cents per episode. So go to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. And as always, on anything I mention on the show, the link is in the show notes.